So welcome back to another episode of Coming Out Stories from What Goes On Media. I'm Emma Goswell and every fortnight we bring you someone inspiring from our LGBTQ plus family to tell their story. This episode is being released in Trans Awareness Week and the brilliant charity Mermaids called on people to do one thing, listen to trans people. We couldn't agree more. And that's why we really want you to hear Jackson's uplifting story. He's a trans man from Wigan in Greater Manchester. Please be aware, though, that Jackson is very open about his mental health and there is talk about suicidal thoughts in this episode. It's time for you to meet him. I am 29 years old and I am a transgender man and a prison officer. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and how do you identify in terms of your sexuality? Uh, I identify as a straight man now. I'm going to guess you may have had a few coming out stories, am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, first coming out story when I was about 20 years old and then the second one last year at 28. So yeah. hopefully I won't have to come out again because then my mum and dad's head's going to fall clean off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so talk us through childhood then. Growing up in Wigan, did you know that you were a trans man did you or did you identify differently you know what I I didn't realize that I was trans until about maybe 26 27 years old but when I look back now I absolutely knew from being a child like absolutely knew in the past looking back I thought oh yeah that's all because I was a gay woman and then you look into it and the more you delve into things you know whether it was being so uncomfortable in shops when it comes to like gender clothing and or you know always wanting to start again I saw I moved school I convinced mum and dad to let me move schools when I was 14 and I was in high school for no reason whatsoever like I was just I just used to come up with things in my head and be like no I need to move I need to start again I need to go and be the real me or or whatever it was going on in my head and it didn't make any sense but I was so determined in that at that point that I convinced my mum to let me move schools I was completely happy in the one that I was in and I moved schools and within two months I was like, no, I want to go back. And luckily they went, to, they let, let me go back, but it was just things like that and I just used to cause absolute chaos, chaos for no reason whatsoever and it just, there, would, there was something in me that was like, you know what, I'm not who I'm supposed to be, but... But it just took you a while to work it out. Yeah, 100%. Like, so, so when I look back now, um, I absolutely know that it was because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin and my own body and... Mm. And the whole sort of gender conversation is, that was definitely what was apparent in me. And I'm guessing, did you just sort of present as a, a normal tomboy like I might have done? But there was a lot yeah. more going on, obviously. Yeah, 100%. Like, I I was always a tomboy growing up. I was always, you know, with the lads or playing football or, or whatever. You know, my mum, like, would catch me being a bridesmaid and I'd have, like, the red shorts on underneath that she'd made me take off before we left the house and somehow I'd, like, managed to get them back on. But, yeah, I definitely thought that I was just a tomboy and... and the whole sort of realising I was a gay woman at the time caused me like some issues mentally as it does probably everyone when you when you go in through figuring out your own identity and your sexuality and and when I joined the RAF and I sort of left Wigan which you know at the time 10 years ago there wasn't very many gay women it wasn't something that was sort of normalised or known to me and then when you join something like the the British military which is predominantly gay women and you're around so many like-minded people and you know you're in a sort of stereotypically masculine role and you join like I joined the rugby team and I was I was around all these women who were like me at the time so that then 
made me think, oh, this is who I am, you know, and I was instantly comfortable and I was instantly like, yeah, this is who I am, I'm, I'm a gay woman, you know, I identify like this and we can play rugby and dress how we want and whatever else. So that for a long time was, it filled the void, if that makes sense. Yeah, so before that, before you joined the RAF, did you have an, an understanding that you were gay when you were at school? Was um, was there that sort of awakening when you were a teenager? Not really, no. I, I didn't really sort of delve into my sexuality. Like, I, I tried really hard to be the stereotypical teenage girl from Wigan. You know, I really, really tried to be that person because I wanted to be normal. I wanted to fit in. You know, I tried, you know, having boyfriends and wearing dresses and... And you know, going out every weekend and looking like like everybody else and and whatever else. And I, I I try really hard to do that, but and nobody clocked, nobody thought, nobody called you gay or lesbian. No, no. I mean, all my life I've been called a man. I literally <laughs> spent my entire life, and I'd be in pubs with you know a dress and six inch heels and hurl down my back like so long, and people would come up to me and be like, "Are you a bloke?" And then as soon as I start transitioning, what? and I look more feminine than ever, apart from I've shaved my head, and I've got people going, "You're right, ladies." And I'm like, you know what? I can't win. <laughs> I can't win here, me. I cannot win. That doesn't make oh. sense to me. I've seen pictures of you pre-transitioning, and you were yeah. a very glamorous woman, oh. weren't you? A lot of people. Well, I, I wouldn't say glamorous, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have said that to me now. You know, you and obviously all my family and friends used to say that. You know, you're a beautiful, athletic woman. You know, that's who you are. But yeah, for a long, long time, people. You know, strangers more than anything used to to call me a man or or shout at me in women's toilets and and things like that. And at the time, obviously, it sounds weird now, seeing as I've transitioned. But at the time, it broke my heart. Like it it was really hard because you know it happened from the age probably about from being about seventeen to to about twenty five, twenty six, and it used to break my heart big time. What do people say to you in toilets then? I've been shouted at before in toilets. Like I was in the toilet once in Dublin actually, and this one was like, "Hey, like." this is the woman's toilet or something like that. And like, it scared the shit out of me. But I was like, yeah, I know I, I am. A, I am a woman, thanks. And obviously kind of like just just left the toilet. But away from that situation, I would just completely break down because it would just just give me so much embarrassment and shame. And I just didn't understand it. And mm. I never wanted to be a man looking like a woman. And I didn't want to be a woman looking like a man. I just want to be who I am. But... Yeah. Well, I was going to say you were misgendered, but in a way you weren't yeah. misgendered, were you? Because yeah, you exactly, were a man, yeah. that's who you were meant to be. Yeah, so it, it sounds crazy now, thinking about how much it used to upset me, but I, that's what it is, it's 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 being misgendered, and that that in itself just just hurts. Yeah, it really, it really, really devastated me at the time, it just hurt me, but obviously now I'm, I'm happy than I've ever been as a man. So. Well, we'll come on to talk about that, but first of all, did you come out to your family and friends then as a lesbian? Is that, is that what happened at, at yeah. one point? Yeah, yeah tell so, me about that. So I joined the RAF when I was 19, and... Within about six months of joining, I sort of realised pretty quick that that was that was what had been sort of troubling me before mm. I'd, I'd left. I've always been like really close to my family, you know. We're really there's my mum, my dad, my my sister, and my brother, and we sort of we we tell each other everything, and we're all we're really close. And uh, so it was a big big thing for me to go home and tell them that. And and at the time, and that was only ten years ago. At the time, it was really massive for me. You know, it was. It wasn't. It was something that I was genuinely terrified of telling them. And you think about that now, and you think, well, you come out as gay now, and people probably won't. A lot of people won't won't, won't bat an eyelid. But back then, I was terrified, and I, I literally sat them all down, and I was I was crying my eyes out. And my dad just looked at me, and he was like, "You're gay, aren't you?" 
And I, I just like was just crying my eyes out. And so your dad knew, or he guessed. Yeah. Everybody, like they all knew. They all yeah. they all knew for a long time before I did. But I was like squeezing my sister's hand, and well, she took a picture of it, and I had it tattooed on me actually. Oh wow, yeah. So I'm looking at your tattoo. It says Nicola and Terry, and it's yeah. hands, so two hands being held. My brother and sister, my, my brother and sister. But the the two hands is when I was basically trying to tell them I was gay, and I was squeezing my sister's hand. And she took a picture of it, and it was just a really like important moment in my life. Well, I'm guessing yeah. by that then, your reaction from your brother and sister was good. It was brilliant, yeah. In terms of coming out as a gay woman, yeah, the, the reaction was, was fantastic and they just accepted that and they all pretty much knew and we, we sort of chatted for hours and whatever else and, and that was that. And a few years later, my sister came out herself, but she was, she was just sat having a Chinese and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a girl. And, you know, and that was it. But, but it was only about, what, probably four, four, three, four years later and the whole topic and how many people had come out since and how much it had normalized and and become so much better in in so little time but yeah so she, so it was kind of just like nothing when she she sort of came out so she didn't do the whole family conference oh, no. and crying she, she literally no. calls she calls me like dramatic but <laughs> at the time for me it was a it was yeah. a big big thing but yeah. um but also maybe you've paved the way for her a bit you know she already knew that her parents were going to yeah. be accepting and knew that you'd be accepting yeah i mean I, I hope so you know it's i would never want to put down her experience you know you don't know how hard it, how hard it is mm-hmm. for anyone but she and she's very different to me she's like yeah this is my life i'm doing it get on board you know she's very <laughs> like straight to the point where i'm like yeah but what about everyone else's feelings just think it's crazy how how fast things have been changing and the fact that she could just do that with so much ease and there was so many more gay women around so i mean are there any gay clubs in wigan has it got a gay scene um not that i know of um it's not got a gay scene as such but i I know a lot of of gay women in wigan now and and when i joined the raf i didn't know a single person and it sounds like joining the RAF and being part of that was really liberating for you, which is interesting because it wasn't that long ago. In fact, there's some someone on this podcast who was thrown out of the RAF in the 1990s for mm. being gay. Wow. But it sounds like when you were there, it was very gay friendly. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I didn't know that. That's uh, wow. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so for, for me, obviously, like now in the modern world now, it's it is predominantly gay women who join the military you know the stero- uh, not stereotypically statistically there is a lot more gay women who join the military in you know army rf navy because of the role and, and it is you know it is stereotypically a little bit more masculine or it allows them to be play sport or it, allow- it gives them so much more opportunity and and it is so much more inclusive in that sense but but yeah it definitely was liberating for me because it just gave me belonging you know, in, in every in every way, and I can only speak mm. highly of that. It gave me belonging in terms of my career and and sports and friends and and my identity and all these things. And the military gives you an identity anyway, but then when you find your sexuality within that as well, I think it just becomes mm. a very special part of you. Yeah. But then it was time to leave. You'd, you'd had enough after a few years. I guess it's a tough career to be in as well. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely loved it. You know, it was challenging in every way, and and it meant a lot to me. And I think you know. In the end, I, I left the RAF because of my own my own mental health issues that I I wasn't okay. And I think as much as I loved it, I've spent my life trying to fill a void. And whether that was something like buying a house or moving school or joining the military or whatever, different things would only fill that void for a certain amount of time. Whether it was a week or like the military, it was four years. You know. Yeah. And if I weren't going to 
like on the journey that I was about to go on that I didn't really know yet I probably would have been in still been in the military but at the time I just weren't okay and I couldn't figure that out and it made me happy for a long time and it made me think right this is who I am I'm going to be in the military forever but when that started to wear, wear off and I, I wasn't okay again. So you were happy, you know, living life as a lesbian in the RAF for many a year. Yeah. Um, and then something sort of changed within you at the age of sort of 26, 27. What, mm. Can you explain what happened, what, what that period of time was like? So I made the decision to leave the RAF when I was 24 in uh, 2017. I came home and I, and I went straight into the prison service. That again for me was... Okay, boom, I'm okay again now. You know, I've got a new challenge. You know, I'm I'm back in uniform. I'm because uniform for me has always been a massive thing. Like it gave me an identity, it gave me a purpose, and I think that now is because I always struggled so much in in clothing and what I, how I wanted to look, and I always felt so uncomfortable if I weren't in work and I didn't know what to put on, sort of thing, like clothes wise. So. Oh, interesting. So you prefer it when someone tells you what you're going to yeah. wear. Oh, oh my right. God, yeah. So, like, I, I really, really struggled. You know, my mum says now, you know, every day when you weren't at work, if you had a day off, your head would fall off because I just I didn't know what to wear. I didn't know how to be. Like, if I if I had worked an early shift and finished at lunch, I could get so much done in that day in my uniform. You know, like, still in my uniform, just pottering about. Whereas, so you'd stay in your uniform at home? Pretty much, yeah. Like, if, if I, like, wanted to, like, nip out shopping or go and do something or, or whatever... I'd purposely just go straight from work because if I was in my uniform, I'd be so much more productive because I just felt mm. so much more comfortable because, in a sense, I was hiding behind it, yeah. you know, in a, in a, and whether that was the military or the prison, it was it was something that says, well, yeah, I'm Jess, but I'm a prison officer and I didn't mm. just have to be Jess. Mm. All those things now looking back is massively w- what it was. it was. It was the need to change my gender, but... When did that realisation come then that Jess was going to be no more? So I was in the prison service for about two years and I loved my job, I loved what I was doing. But again, you know, my my mental health just started to deteriorate big time and it was just noticed that I wasn't the same prison officer that I was. You know, I I was always good at my job and I was always motivated and happy and enthusiastic and I was just becoming more and more angry and, and not a lot of patience and... Obviously, you get abuse as well, like, for different things. So, you know, in a prison, people are going to pick on your weaknesses if you have an argument with someone, you know, whether that's calling you a slag or a dyke or whatever else. It's your weakness, isn't it? So This is the prisoners calling you this. Yeah, yeah. so if you, have an altica- if you have some sort of allocation with a prisoner, they're going to attack your weak link, so... Mm. And is it male prisoners or female prisoners you work with? It's male, male prisoners mm. I work with. But, yeah, it was half and half, and I loved my job, but I was changing, and... I'd be able to put on a front as much as I could in work, but then as soon as I would leave work, I would just be a miserable sod at home and, and people at home would be like, why do, why does everyone else get this happy person and we get this like asshole? Yeah, and I, I didn't know what it was for a long time and I think it took me to about the age of getting to about 26 and I started to have a conversation with my ex-partner at the time and I said just to talking about mental health and stuff like that and and I brought up the fact that I'd asked my mum once years before is it because I want to be a man like is that what's wrong with me is is that why I'm so depressed 
and at the time my mum was like no like of course not you know you you're this beautiful athletic woman you're unique like that's why everyone loves you you, you wouldn't be you if you were a man you know you, you're all of these things because you're a woman and you're you and that's what we both kind of believed at that time and and we moved on and then and then after I'd had that conversation it was just stuck in my head again and this time I just couldn't get ri- I just couldn't get rid of it and and that sort of led me to social media and YouTube and and looking into all these people who had transitioned and and who were really happy and who'd built the body that they wanted. Did you find many trans people to relate to then? Because there aren't that many role models no, of trans it, men that are out there, are there? Not many, there aren't many male trans men celebrities, are there? No, and, and that's the thing, you know, and you hit the nail on the head there. That is what exactly why I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can to become to become a personality that is well known because mm. especially for for the for the female to male side of things there isn't a fit there isn't someone there isn't a face there isn't there isn't yeah. someone to show kids that their life is worth living yeah i can think of jake graff but i can't think of many yeah. others yeah. yeah so so i obviously i found jake graff the likes of Leith ashley i don't know if you've known him but he's he's from america and I, and i found different things on youtube and different people documenting the transition and the more i delved into it and the more i found people who had been transitioning for years and had really made something of of the life and were happy and and had done these different things and I, I started to become so jealous of these people and I thought well they're living the life that I want to live like this must be me this like this must be what I want because I'm so jealous of them right now you know building this you know this masculine physique that I've always because I've always been passionate about fitness and aesthetics mm. and whatever else but I fell out of love with my own body and I was seeing these things, you know, whether it was modelling or acting or, you know, just having a career or a relationship or whatever. And these people were living their life and they were happy about it. And I just became obsessed for about a year before I actually started to think, can I do this? And were you talking to any of these people on social media at the time or were you just sort of absorbing it all, really? Yeah, I was just absorbing it all and, and I wasn't really talking to anybody, to be honest. And it took me a long time to, to speak to, to my then partner about it. And at the time, I was terrified of telling her, you know, because you have every every fear under the sun, don't you know, whether people are going to reject you or freak out or, or just think you're this freak or whatever else. And there was just so much fear there, but credit to her, she, she did nothing but encourage me in, at that time and try and work, let me work it out. And, and I would talk about it and then I would suppress it for about six months or whatever. Mm. And then I'd talk about it again and then I'd I'd suppress it for like... A little less time and it, and it would just sort of come up and come up and and those times would come closer and closer together where we both sort of realized that this is this is becoming a thing you know like I need to acknowledge this and I saw myself change you know dr- like drastically without anyone knowing why like I would you know I, I cut my hair or I started dressing differently and I stopped wearing makeup and the tiniest little changes in me that that no one would ever really notice until you told them that it was happening or until they looked back. Did no one pick up on that then? Because that's quite dramatic to cut all your long hair off. Not Just really, no, because yeah. it, it was slowly like, so I had like an undercut yeah. and then the undercut would get higher and yeah. things that, I was doing but I didn't even realize I was doing them I just thought oh yeah I'm just I want to look like this or I want to do this and I look back now and I think I see what I was doing but I didn't even know what I was doing so nobody else knew what I was doing (laughs) and it just kind of happened and I realized and got to the point where I didn't want to die but I didn't want to live anymore 
And I have always said throughout my life, you know, when it feels scary to jump, you jump. Otherwise, you stay in the same place your entire life. And it felt like it was time for me to practice what I preach and and prove to people that this can be done. And, and if it doesn't work, I'm ready to die anyway. It sounds like your mental health was at rock bottom then. It was really, really, really bad. Yeah, it got it got to the point where I was just was not okay. I wasn't okay in work. I wasn't okay at home. I was terrified of being on my own. You know, I'd I'd experienced struggles before. You know, mental health wise, or coming back off tour and not leaving my mum's side and things like that. But I was at the point now where I was just so unhappy in myself and in my own skin. And and my mum knew. My mum knew that I wasn't okay. I couldn't stop crying and I certainly couldn't have a drink without crying and you know everyone knew there was something and I had a, a massive to do with with one of my governors who's become a very very good friend of mine now but we had a massive argument to do with you know me and work and a massive lack of communication between her obviously thinking there was something going on with me and me being completely defensive about that and not being able to tell anybody what was wrong especially because I hadn't told my family yet and I just I just couldn't sort of acknowledge it and and in the end I um I went off sick from work and I knew that I had to acknowledge this. When you get to that point I think you just have to you know what what do I actually want now because I might as well try. If I'm ready anyway I might as well try and if it fails it fails like that's you know, there's no point in doing anything else. And you couldn't have carried on like that, I don't think. No, I absolutely couldn't have carried on as, as Jess. I was just stunted. I felt I felt stuck. I, I didn't want to achieve anything else in work or within myself. And, and I've always been such a motivated person who wanted to thrive and achieve and, and make myself and my family proud. And I just didn't want to do anything. And I just I just couldn't look in the mirror. I just... And what what changed then? Because there must have been a moment where you thought, that's it, I'm getting up and I'm doing this and I'm going to have to tell someone and I'm going to have to start the process of transitioning. I think at that point when that sort of happened at work, I was just like, you know what, I, I, I can't keep doing this. Like, I'm going to destroy my own life. And I made the decision and I was like, right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to tell mum and dad, I'm going to have to, I'm going to do this. Like I said, I didn't want to die, I didn't want to, do that I didn't want to do that to my family you know I, I was so close to my family and I, and I had an amazing life you know and, and I was hard on myself because Jess had no reason to be unhappy mm. absolutely not you know I've I, I had the most amazing childhood the most amazing family the most amazing friends and and I loved who I was as a person so why was I not happy I realized that you know what it's I have to practice what I preach and I have to do this and I have to do what terrifies me more than anything in the world because I believe and I've always believed that on the other side of that is true happiness. I made the decision to tell them and I knew that it was gonna be hell and I knew that it was gonna hurt them and I knew that it was gonna be hard and I've tried to go into this situation with the most understanding I could for them and for everyone around me because transitioning doesn't just affect me. It affects everyone around me, it affects my family, it affects my friends, it affects my colleagues, it affects everybody. It's it's not just about that person. So did you sit everyone down for another family conference? Yeah, yeah, we had another family conference and uh, I think my mum had an inkling, but it was still the biggest shock, you know, for them all. And, and my, I mean, even my dad, you know, he, he's, 
he said it. He said the same thing again, but he, but he, but this time he was joking, and he just like massively ended up putting his foot in it. And you know, what it, did he say? Can you remember? It was like, oh, are you getting a puppy, or are you pregnant, or you this, you that. And then he was like, you're not having a sex change, are you? And it was just in jest. It was a joke, and and I just looked at him, and I was like, yeah. And honestly, at that point, he just went green. Like, it was just the biggest shock, bless him, because he was joking, you know. It, he just did not expect it in the slightest, and, and neither did my sister or my brother. And, you know, I think my mum my mum knew deep down, but I think it, she she explains it, you know, like it was still like a massive slap across the face because she, I don't think she ever expected it to, to happen. And I knew it was going to be hard, and I, I think it's really important to understand that as much as someone doesn't die, you you have to grieve a person. You know, I've had to grieve Jess. They had a daughter. They had a daughter who they named Jessica and, and they had a, that daughter for 27 years and, and they had, you know, thoughts or, or dreams or ideas and, and whatever else for that for that daughter and and that's really, really hard to let go of and it's scary. But for parents as well, it, there is so much fear for the child and for the amount of abuse that abuse that they might get or you know my mum my mum and dad always say you know they see it and they think well this world's hard enough like I don't want it to be even harder for you but as difficult as that was I had to try and explain that it was either a dead daughter or a living son and it's still your child you know and and that took a long time to understand but they've been incredible it sounds like they're quite lucky as well that you're very understanding about mm. any of their negativity or any of their questions or any of their yeah. transphobia or confusion. You've sort of understood that and see it from their perspective as well. Oh, 100%. And and I, that's why I'm I'm trying to sort of normalise this conversation so much because there's so much taboo around the whole topic in general and mm. people are so terrified of, of making mistakes or or offending someone, or getting themselves in trouble, or, you know, abuse and whatever else, you know, my dad and my brother, coming from Wigan and being in Wigan the whole life, you know, I came out and their words were, well, we're going to have to leave Wigan. Really? Because they thought they were going to end up fighting all the time, sticking up for me, and they their initial reaction was, everyone's just going to give you abuse, they're not going to be able to handle this, and we're going to end up fighting with everyone, sticking up for you, and... And obviously my response to that was, are we bloody hell leaving Wigan? Like, absolutely not. You know, I've been able to stick up for myself for the last 28 years. I'll carry on doing it now. And we're not going to be fighting with anybody. Like, you give people the information and if they want to remain a dickhead, they remain a dickhead. But I'm going to do this and I'm and I'm going to do it properly and I'm going to be visible for everyone else who needs to see it. Yeah. So no fights and no dickheads or did you have to end up cutting some people out your life? <laughs> um, you know what, I've been the luckiest person in the world in terms of the amount of support and love that I've had and obviously most of that is because I'm surrounded by incredible people but I I like to think that part of that is is because of the approach and allowing people that room and that space to learn because I had no idea what I was going into before I went into it so how on earth anyone else was going to understand this was was beyond me and I think that's been the most important thing is we go on this journey together and and we'll all learn and we'll figure it out and and realize what's what's most important in life and and don't get me wrong you know those first few months of after coming out was horrendous and you know for my, for my family they were they were trying to come to terms with that and and that's okay you know they they didn't understand and 
they wanted to try and understand but they were terrified of it and they didn't want to let go of Jess and and how were they with the name change and getting the pronouns right difficult difficult in a sense of you know being forgetful or 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 just trying to understand right I'm gonna now call my daughter my son and whatever else but and and don't get me wrong like we we knocked heads a few times in the beginning but it's so important to know that that's okay you know it doesn't mean that they they're, they're transphobic or that they're against it or anything like that it's because if I said to you now no my name's Kevin you'd be like well no your name's Jax because I've been calling you Jax for the last hour yeah. like <laughs> yeah. so so saying oh well yeah my name's Jax now well no well it was Jess for 28 years like I'm not just going to be able to yeah. to snap out of it and you have to allow people to adjust you know it, it just takes time and and I said to him, "All I need to, all I need you to do is try. You know, I don't care if you call me Jess or she forever, but as long as you correct yourself every time, you, you acknowledge, you acknowledge that, you've done something that wrong. and yeah. you, and it's not in malice. Then I don't care. You know, that's fine. So that was your family, mm. and how were things at work? Because that's a big deal to you know be at work as one person and then come back <laughs> as come back as someone else. Yeah. So, so I was a female prison officer for four years. And I 100% believed that I had to give up my career. I, I, I loved being a prison officer so much, but I thought, you know what, there's absolutely not a chance in hell that I'm going to be able to be Miss Feely for four years. And that's to staff as well as prisoners. You know, it's daunting regardless. But in that type of environment, there was just not an ounce of hope in my mind that I would be able to walk back through those gates. And... When I first came out and I, and I went off sick, I, I moved, I left, I moved to Brighton. Oh. Obviously, I was just talking then about leaving Wigan and whatever else, but initially I did for three months. I, I left and I, because I, I didn't think I could do it in Wigan. I didn't think I could do that beginning bit of being in that awkward, horrendous stage of the beginning of transition, you know, because everyone tells me now, you know, they were quite naive to the fact, me included, that... When I came out, everyone thought, right, you've done it now, you should be happy. But this is before you've even taken any testosterone or done anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, you've done it now. We all, ac- we, you know, we all accept you. You know, it's, we can start moving forward. And, and those three months after first coming out were the worst three months of my life. You know, I, my mental health took an, it went even worse than it was before after coming out because I'd lost everything that Jess was. I'd come out now, so I couldn't hide behind Jess anymore. I'd, so I'd lost all that. Jess was this athletic, ex-military, happy, gay woman. I had an identity as Jess that I'd built up over over however many years. And so I'd lost that, and I'd, I didn't know who Jax was yet. And I still looked exactly like Jess, but I'd shaved my head. I just did not know what to do with myself. and And I was like, you know what, I can't let people... I can't let people watch me do this. I can't let people watch me in this vulnerable, uncomfortable, middle, awkward stage of going from man to woman. I just can't let people watch me do that. But that's probably when you needed the most support, but you took yourself away from all of your support. Yeah, exactly. So I I, I am a dickhead in that way. (laughs) But, um, and I just thought, you know what? No, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away. I'm going to disappear. And I'm going to come back, Jackson, this beautiful, fit man. (laughs) Obviously, in hindsight, it was ridiculous, but I needed to go away to realise what I needed to do. And when I moved to Brighton, I wanted to move to somewhere that I loved, that I, that was really inclusive, you know, that, you know, it was all the things that I wanted to, to do and be around. But it was the height of COVID and, you know, Brighton weren't really Brighton and, you know, all these things. So when I was there, 
I was probably worse than I'd, than I'd already been, and that was the first time that I genuinely started to become quite scared of my own suicidal thoughts. Um, I found myself in Brighton, you know, sorting out the dog's tea and thinking, I'm, I'm, I actually feel quite scared that I've got a knife in my hand here. And, you know, throughout my mental health issues, never have I experienced that, whether it was having serious suicidal thoughts or dreams that would that would scare me when I'd woke up and things like that and I thought you know what I'm four hours away from home there's just me here like with my dogs who I love more than anything who've got me through everything if I do something here no one's coming mm. like no one no one's coming here to save me like I'm I need to save my own life here like big time and I've done all of this and I've gone through all of this and I'm at this point I'm I've said to myself I'm going to try and do this so I'm going to try and do this right and I realised that I missed my family and I missed my friends and I missed my job and as terrifying as it was I had to keep doing what scared me and I had to keep saying right well I do this or I die I do this or I die and and every decision that I've made over the last 18 months has pretty much been well I do this or I die. So you came back? So I came back and I spoke to work and I made a very big public coming out video, you know, because I'd gone away and hid. And and I told everybody before I came back, obviously over YouTube, which had the most overwhelming response. And So hang on, you came out over YouTube? That's, this is a new one for me. Yeah, yeah, I made a, I made a coming out video over YouTube and, and basically shared that. And, and my, you know, whole network of people had no idea until that point. And so I was in Brighton and I did that and, and obviously caused chaos in Wigan I was just in Brighton like yeah (laughs) is your phone pinging like mad and what were the comments like you know what it was absolutely incredible and you know I made the video you know explaining and 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 asking for people's understanding and and just sort of trying to to make people understand why I'd been a certain way for a while and what was going on and and that we were going to go on this journey together and and I had the most overwhelming response it was unreal and and it made me realize that I needed my support system. You know, people wanted to be there for me and I wasn't letting people be there for me. I needed to let them be there and I needed to be vulnerable and say, you know what, this is how it is and and I feel really uncomfortable, but growth doesn't lie in your comfort zone, does it? So, you know, I had to to think, you know what, I'm just going to do this and we're all going to learn together and and we'll just see what happens. And then what was it like going back to work as a man? I would rather be on a plane to Iraq than than walk back into a prison as a trans man. It was the most terrifying thing I have ever done. You know, to this day, it is still is the most terrifying thing I've ever done, but it's the best thing I ever did. And that is because it's just completely turned my life around. And now I wake up in the morning and I want to live and I want to achieve and I want to do all these things. And I believe that by stepping back into the prison, it has changed so many people's mindsets it's unbelievable, you know, including my own, because I had no idea what I was about to go through, you know, and it's so educating me and has educated everybody else as well. And did the prison service, your managers support you well? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the prison I work at has been has been absolutely incredible in that sense. And, and they allowed me to initially just start back on nights because I wanted to just stay in the dark and... And then obviously transition into going back onto onto the the unit that I work on now and and interact with everybody and and they've just allowed me to do everything at my own pace and and I think that is so so important because mm. if they'd said to me 
no, you you have to go and do this straight away or or put me in a situation that I didn't want to be in. I wouldn't have been able to do it because, you know, obviously at the time I went back and I hadn't even started hormones yet, so I still looked very much like the officer who'd left. Mm. And then to, to to try and own that and be that person and, and front that is so scary, you know, especially in a place that can be so volatile and and you have to think about now, you know, there's always fears being a prison officer, but the extra fears on top of that now that, that people probably don't realise are, are things like, you know, there could be five prisoners tomorrow who see me on a wing and think, you know what, I'll show you you're still a woman and, and, and drag me in a cell and rape me. And people have those opinions and, and that's a very possible outcome at times and and you just have to be aware of that and, and my prison have been in, have been incredible and and have allowed me to transition and become mentally and physically strong enough to be at a point where I'm like, right, okay, I'll go and do this now and I'll go and work all over the prison now and I'll mm. but if I'd actually sort of done that straight away, they would have put me in a very dangerous position and, and I think it's so important for managers to understand that. Yeah. And what about the male prisoners? How did they react to you? Because there would have been some that remembered you from before, I guess. So I work on a pipe unit, which is a psychologically informed planned environment. The unit is a bit different to a generic wing in a prison. It involves doing different groups and sessions with, with the lads and and it holds a lot of prisoners who are in for life or, or indefinite sentences and have, have kind of become stuck in the system due to mental health issues and, and personality disorder or struggling to manage their emotions or maintain relationships and, mm. and things like that. So it's very much about trying to teach the teach these people about life you know a lot of them have grown up in a sense where they, they've not been taught how to communicate or how to deal with their emotions it's just about helping people learn about life so I went back into that situation completely open uh, about it and and sort of on a mission to to show them that this isn't about about gender it's about life you know you you have to put yourself in situations where you what you really don't want to be in and and you have to be willing to to be vulnerable and be open and be all in in what you want to achieve because if you're not willing to do the hard stuff whether that's emotionally or, or mentally or, or physically even you're not going to get anywhere and I sort of had that conversation with all of them and and taught them about gender and pronouns and you know everything and and you know what obviously you have the odd one who, who doesn't understand and openly admits that but a lot of the men have said to me you know I'm right behind you, you know, you've completely changed my mindset or you've shown me that the prison officers are human too or you've shown me that if you can go through all of that and come back and do and be in a prison and still have a career, then so can I or if you can be suicidal but turn your life around like that, then then so can I and it, it's massively give people the courage to change their own life and that's absolutely incredible and I decided to, to obviously put an event on at work, a transgender awareness event to educate everyone and and raise awareness for the staff mainly um it wasn't a prisoner thing it was for the staff and thank them as well for for obviously all the support and it was it sort of happened like a year on from after i'd come out and i included the because it's a small unit that i work on there's only 10 lads on there and i included all them in the planning of the event and you know all these things and had t-shirts made and the T-shirts, there was three different colours. There was pink, white and blue for the for the trans flag. And they all had a butterfly on the front because I'd, I'd sort of explained the meaning of my butterfly. And, and then on the back, one said, be unapologetically you. One said, feel the fear and do it anyway. And, mm. and the other one said, remember who you are. And 
they all wore the t-shirts with so much pride and and for prisoners to be so proud of an officer is is unbelievable and to be have so much respect and and care for an you know for an officer's well-being is is kind of unheard not unheard of but it's difficult for prisoners to be like that you know because it mm. can put them in situations where people are like what are you sticking up for an officer for and for governors to see prisoners being so supportive of an officer was unbelievable. And what I will say for people that can't see you, you believe in these um, maxims so much, you have got, remember who you are, tattooed on your right hand, <laughs> and you've got a massive butterfly tattooed on your neck. Yeah, d- yeah. I, I had the butterfly literally pretty much as soon as I moved to Brighton. Um, it changed my identity immediately. You know, it changed the way I look. It, and you, the butterfly represents transition. And the fact that, you know, with the butterfly, everyone appreciates how beautiful butterflies are. You know what? There's a butterfly in my garden. Um, there is. As we're talking about butterflies, a butterfly has appeared in your garden. That is just <laughs> so garden, meaningful. The garden is a complete shithole, but there is a beautiful butterfly <laughs> flying around. Um, yeah, and, and people see how, bu- how beautiful butterflies are, but what they fail to see is the tremendous amount of hardship that, that the butterfly went through to reach that that point of beauty and and I think that that is like a big a big representation of of transgender you know and non-binary people because they they massively represent the difficulties that come with with going through that and and then achieving something so great and I think it's important to not forget what people had to go through to get to where they are mm. but yeah they definitely wore all the t-shirts with pride and a few of them even made a speech you know, uh, you know that about 150 people turned up to to the prison that day, and and uh, from different prisons, and and my mom and my sister and my aunt even came, and and I made a documentary to play on that day to celebrate, a, you know, a year after coming out, and and it included my mom and my sister and and governors and friends and colleagues, and it was a documentary that basically highlighted how my transition has affected everyone and and what they've seen and how it's made them feel and and what what I looked like as a person before you know what I was like and, and things like that and it literally brought the room to tears you know the, the room was literally silent for a, it was about an hour and 10 minutes this documentary and and you know for prison officers to sit silent for so long is unbelievable but and prisoners as well you know they, they, they were in tears and and they made different speeches about me and and just it was just unbelievable and it was just something that I don't think any of us ever thought we would see in that sense and it made me really proud of, of them for embracing it. And it seems to me that you're on a mission not just to fit in, not to be stealth, not to pass as a trans man, mm. but actually to be out and proud mm. as a trans man and to talk about those issues. And that's really important for you, isn't it? Just oh, to be to be open about who you are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we was talking before about the women's football last night, and and I saw a post on on Facebook last night, and and it was a picture of a little girl watching watching them win, and it it just gave me shivers then today, innit? Yeah. But and it said above it, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it it touched me massively because that is exactly what I'm trying to say. You know, in the media and representation-wise, there isn't someone, especially for for a trans male, and and there needs to be so much more representation out there because there needs to be some someone or, or people who who children can see and aspire to be like and and mm. think, you know what, that's me and that's who I am. Because if you can't see anybody on on the telly or on the radio or, or whatever there is no one to say you know what your life's worth living you, you don't need to give up you know you can still have a family and a career and relationships and you don't have to give up your life and you can fight for what you want and fight for your own happiness and it's not about looking a certain way it's just about being 
being you you know don't get me wrong i've had abuse off trans people for not looking trans enough you know i, I get what? the i get so much abuse on tiktok it's unreal and there will always be people who will say you should have killed yourself or you need electric shocking or but all these bollocks you know but well on social media i guess yeah where people yeah feel emboldened to talk shit yeah. all the time yeah exactly and you know i'm trying i'm trying my best to build a platform on tiktok and and that's what comes with it but but 90 percent of that is so positive and the amount of parents who message me saying you've given me hope for my child and you've made this so much better and please keep doing this and mm. and please keep keep having these conversations because you know all listening to my podcast talk about my mum and dad and things like that and the fear that's held there it just makes people feel okay and and like I, when I went back to work I said the same thing to everyone you know I'll talk about anything like it's okay to make mistakes it's it's fine like I'd rather you come and talk to me than avoid me because you know people have made mistakes or called me miss and burst out crying in the corridor and I end up consoling them I'm like it's all right it's, it's okay you know it's don't worry about it but you've become the inspiration that you sought all those years ago I hope so and I, I hope that I'm, I'm trying my best to do that and and if I can if I can be that for one person who decides to not take their own life then we're doing something right yeah and finally, any advice for anyone that may be in that dark place that you were in quite a few years ago, where you're unsure about the future, you don't know whether it's safe to come out, you don't know what the future holds. What advice would you give to someone in that dark place? For me, I mean, obviously I've said it before, but you do have to do what terrifies you the most because that is what will bring you so much happiness and, and contentment and and since I've been authentic about myself that made everything else authentic whether it was my relationships or my friendships or, or things with my family and and sometimes you have to do things that upset everyone you love mm. because in the end you have to be happy like you are the only person who has to live with you 24 mm. 7 and if you don't deal with it now it's only going to hit you in 20 years time so if you don't want a midlife crisis just do it <laughs> <laughs> but there is people out there and, and there's there's people out there to, to speak to and be around and yeah you just need to be you what an inspiration and i think that's the first person i've met with a tattoo to represent not just one but both coming out stories beautiful do go and follow him on all the socials he is jacks rider feely on instagram and feely jackson on tiktok f double e l e y j a x o n oh and if you want to find his documentary it is on youtube and it's called the turning point a transgender documentary a big thank you to jackson for being so open Right, next time round, you're going to hear from Jenny. She is a children's author from Canada who came out as a lesbian a lot later in life. It's so funny, Emma, like when I think back and I speak to other lesbians and other gay men and whatnot that they all said they knew when they were younger. And I don't know, that just wasn't, it's just not my story. It's not how I, you know, developed into my sexuality. And um, looking back, I can certainly see that there were aspects that were missing for me, but yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't, you know, there in bright lights, gay, gay, gay. 